Hello everyone, and welcome to the Russian Empire History Podcast, the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. This is Special Episode 3, Putin's Ukrainian Delusions, with Oleksa Drachevich of Western University, Canada. It was not my plan to have multiple special episodes in a row, but we are living in exceptional circumstances that require a response. For those of you listening in the future, this episode was recorded two weeks into Putin's invasion of Ukraine, when we still have no idea of how it may ultimately turn out. But we are not going to be talking directly about the invasion. Instead, we will be focusing on some of the historical claims Putin has made in the run-up to the invasion, attempting to justify his plans through assertions that Ukraine is not a real country or people, but merely a historical error created by the Soviet Union. And so, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Um, would you like to please introduce yourself to the listeners? Uh, yes, I'm uh, Dr. Alexa Pluchevich, a, a part-time assistant professor at Western University uh, in Ontario, Canada. And I specialize particularly in Soviet foreign policy, in uh, international communism, and uh, the global impact of the Bolshevik Revolution. So, ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, Putin gave a speech on television where he held forth for an hour on his version of the history of Russia and the Ukrainians. And around six months earlier, he had an article, which people seemed to think was quite funny at the time, but retrospectively wasn't at all, Mm -hmm. on the historic unity of Russians and Ukrainians. Uh, In that article, he said, Modern Ukraine is fully a product of the Soviet era. We know and remember that to a significant degree, it was created with the help of historical Russia, the founders of the USSR. After they themselves have annulled the Treaty of 1922, we must return to the same borders that existed when they joined the Union. As per other territorial gains, they're subject to discussion and negotiation because the foundation has been annulled. So. We're not going to talk about the whole historical background going back you know, 500 years or whatever of how Ukraine became a part of the Russian Empire, because that would just take too long. Today we're going to focus on that version of Soviet events that Putin's presented in support of uh, Russia's attack. And so let's start with that. How did Ukraine become a part of the Soviet Union? Uh, so uh, during the First World War, uh, as sort of the the moment where all of the empires, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, uh, they all disintegrated. For our purposes, we need to focus on the Austro-Hungarian and the Russian empires. And when uh, the first the revolution of uh, February Revolution of 1917 took place, uh, Essentially, what ends up happening is, is that there is an independence movement that breaks out in Ukraine, particularly uh, in uh, sort of the, the more Western areas, um, hoping to also eventually link up with what would be uh, the areas of Ukraine that, for example, where today Lviv is, was part of Austro-Hungary. Uh, and the goal simply was, was to 
uh, have autonomy. Uh, they push against the provisional government, hoping that this is an opportunity. And it's this this weird time period where it's the first of many different iterations of this national movement. So you have uh, the Central Rada, for example, that starts. That's roughly 1917, goes into 1918. And so basically what happens is, is uh, they, uh, Mikhail uh, Khrushchevsky is involved, a notable historian of Ukraine. Uh, he ends up becoming sort of the face of independence, and they take advantage of the revolution, long story short. And the provisional government really, at first, is very hesitant to give them autonomy, but largely are essentially forced to accept it to some degree, largely because of their own uh, instability within Russia. Fast forward to the Bolshevik Revolution, and then you have this situation where you have the Central Rada that wants to be independent, and you have the Bolsheviks that, uh, led by Lenin, that want to uh, spread world revolution and have this sort of sense of self-determination where uh, they want to allow the workers to choose where, for example, uh, they might have their, uh, uh, develop their nationhood with the idea of eventually merging back into what would eventually become the Soviet Union. The Central Rada takes advantage of the war. So going into, 19, um, uh, in, into 1918, when the Bolsheviks decide to pull out of the war, which would, which would lead to the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk negotiations, the Ukrainians take advantage of it and actually gain uh, independence. Uh, on February 9th, they sign their own Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Central Powers, and essentially it gives them this sort of independence outside of the Russian state, and they're happy about this. The problem is, is that the Germans pretty much guarantee their independence, and what they choose to do is they then support a military coup. They put in uh, Pavel Skoropadsky, a conservative. A uh, he, he claims to be a descendant of the uh, of, of uh, some of the Cossacks in the region, and he runs Ukraine for most of 1918 until the Germans uh, lose the war, uh, side the ceasefire, and then you have another uh, government come into play, a People's Republic, run by Volodymyr Vinichenko and several others, that tries to again establish an independent Ukraine separate from what, what is happening in Bolshevik Russia, separate from Poland, separate from Austria-Hungary, all of that. Um, as part of this movement, they even try to go to Paris, try to appeal to Wilson, much like so many other uh, various nations around the world did, or various peoples around the world did, hoping that self-determination would be uh, issued to them. The Ukrainians don't really get much of an audience, um, and instead, uh, over time, over the next couple of years, the Bolsheviks try to develop their own uh, communist state there, uh, developing basically a puppet, uh, essentially in Kharkiv. And what they do from there is slowly, over the course of the Russian Civil War, take over much of what would be modern-day Ukraine. Uh, essentially, all of the area except for, uh, again, Galicia, modern-day Lviv, uh, which remains outside of the uh, eventual Soviet Union and the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic that's formed. Uh, in these early years, and um, basically incorporated as part of the Soviet Union. So that's sort of how the initial part happened. Um, one of the things that's also important to kind of note here, beyond obviously highlighting all of these independence movements exist before the Bolsheviks are even in power, is there's a difference between the West and the East. So under in Austria, uh, the Austrian Empire, Ukrainians were allowed to speak their own language. They were able to write, to uh, develop songs, to actually develop an intelligentsia. 
Hence also why the Western parts of Ukraine usually uh, have uh, lead a lot of the uh, cultural and intellectual aspects that are tied to nationhood, uh, to the national movement and things like this. Um, one of the things that also happens is especially uh, with regards and even as early as 1917, 1918, Kharkiv and the regions that today we are hearing about uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, is more Russified to some degree. And so a lot of that history that we're seeing play out today was already somewhat in place then, a result of Russian imperial policies, Russification, population transfers, things like that. So again, it's this weird moment where Ukrainian nation develops out of this territory, but it's somewhat split only just because, again, the imperial fractures and, and sort of where people um, are living and, and under whose rule. Putin particularly claims that Ukraine was created as a gift of Lenin. Lenin used the support of several minority groups in the Russian Empire to help the Bolsheviks take power, promising them various kinds of autonomy and homelands. You know, he's a very pragmatic guy, Lenin, and he would take any kind of uh, help he could get and usually would then turn around and fail to give anything that he'd promised back to them. So the Tatars, for example, were strong supporters and uh, Lenin was very careful to create a Tatarstan that did not include half the Tatar population and had a, a majority Russian unit. So when the borders of Ukraine were created, we'd say, for example, that the, the Kuban was well populated with Ukrainian groups were not included. Was this these kind of drawing borders up with the intention of weakening the Ukrainian people as such? Yeah, so with some of that, this is where like Terry Martin calls it the affirmative action empire, where we're going to where the Soviet Union basically states uh, Lenin and to a lesser extent Stalin, at least during the 1920s, we're going to give all of the various ethnicities and nationalities within Russia, realizing it's a multi-ethnic state. We're going to give them all of these different uh, sort of th this autonomy. And one of the biggest things that they, they focus on is um, indigenization, uh, colonization. And basically the idea is, is that this would be kind of a, a, a make good on the old Russification policies in which during uh, under the Russian Empire, uh, the Tsardom often tried to Russify these areas and, and sort of to, to crush the uh, various different cultures. Instead, under the Bolsheviks, they promote, so Ukrainians are to have to, to promote their culture, their folklore, their language. Uh, Ukrainians are to be running the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, and this would be the case for all of the other republics in any autonomous region. Part of this is more just a realization that the Bolsheviks need to focus on consolidating power. Um, and that's part of this as well. Um, during the, the 1920s, part of the reason why they don't include some areas is that they want to, that, that if they were historically considered Russian, the Bolsheviks are not, are, are tempted not to really, uh, change too much about the way that the, the, the map really is at that point. Um, because again, for them, even the recreation of sort of trying to regain a lot of the former czarist lands. So this goes to the Caucasus, to Ukraine, to Belarus, um, to, uh, again, Central Asia, a lot of that is that even though that they are now um, attempting to claim that they stand for self-determination, they also want to maintain as much of the old Tsarist empire for their own economic reasons to rebuild the state and be this bulwark of international communism. 
Uh, this is also why at the same time they realize, at least during the 20s, okay, Finland's independent. That's not a frontier they're willing to really deal with. And they used Finland as a way to tell the world, see, we're serious about self-determination. We recognize independent Finland when that was just a fait accompli about their own general weakness at the time. Um, and so when they're able to then retake Ukraine, and they even try to retake um, Poland. Um, and this is where then you have the uh, Russo-Polish War and the, the miracle on the Vistula and the Poles um, managed to actually turn back the Red Army. And that's really what saves Poland in terms of allowing it to be independent, um, at least for the interwar period. But uh, you have this sort of period where they're trying to kind of create this Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. And that's largely maintained till about 1931-32, when Ukraine starts to then, uh, some of the Ukrainian uh, leaders start to notice there are significant Ukrainians outside of the borders. We bring those part of Ukraine that should be part of the Ukrainian nation. And Terry Martin suggests this is one reason why there's a shift. Um, other reasons are also that by the time of the 1930s, when you then have the collectivization policies, the industrialization policies, the Soviet Union is far more stable. And so Stalin feels now that he can start to um, essentially implement his policies and worry less about keeping the various nationalities happy. And so during the 1930s, you have the Holodomor, the Great Famine that affects Ukrainians, um, along with also Kazakhs, the Don region, the Volga region. Uh, but Ukrainians die in great numbers as a result of the famine, uh, a function both of collectivization being higher in the region, but also this is one of the highest grain producing regions. So the Soviets focus on Ukraine significantly more, um, meaning that uh, somewhere between 3.5 to 5 million Ukrainians die, depending again on um, how conservative uh, you go with the estimates. Uh, during that time, the Ukrainian intelligentsia is targeted as well. Uh, they end up being particularly hit hard both by the famine, but then also the great terror that follows. Um, a lot of this is then sort of to undermine the Ukrainian nation uh, during this time period. And so you have this moment where you have that happening on one hand, and then Stalin also starts to promote Russian nationalism on the other hand, and pull, moving away from the indigenization policies, where uh, instead of the affirmative action empire, it's the friendship of peoples where Russia is now the uh, first among equals. It is sort of the leading uh, nationality and all of the other nationalities in the Soviet Union uh, are kind of considered one step below. And this is where you then start to see the revival of Russian culture and, and everything from Russian folklore to Russian uh, operas and cultural artifacts to even this is where the Great Patriotic War with the Second World War comes into play. It's all part of that movement. Um, and then it's moving forward when you have then what's referred to as the gift of Crimea under Khrushchev, where uh, even that's, that's one of those weird moments where historians aren't sure what to make of it. Um, some suggest that it's just added because it's linked territory of Crimea just to, to Ukraine. Um, others is it's just it's again to uh, some focused on the Crimean Tatar population and the um, Soviet Union didn't want to deal with it specifically, making it instead a problem, uh, sort of viewing it as a, uh, a minority and, and those minority rights as something that the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic would have to deal with. Um, unfortunately, that's something I, that I know a little bit less about uh, specifically that. But uh, it's again, it's one of those sort of moments where, again, uh, it, it, it's, it's something that's come up, especially recently with the Ukraine, with the Crimean annexation, is that Crimea was never meant to be part of Ukraine. 
uh, highlighting Khrushchev's gift of Crimea. So, Speaking of Ukraine, let's move on to how the borders of uh, Ukraine have changed over the years. There's a, been a map which is quite widely circulated on Russian social media and other places showing you know, alleged changes over the centuries that you know, Ukraine as such is a small area kind of yep. around, around Kiev. And then this area was added by the Tsars. This area was added by Lenin. This area was added by someone else with the implication that you know, it's not a real country. It's just kind of cobbled together. But let's move on to that. In a let's just talk about so what actually was in Ukraine at the time. If, at the start of the Soviet Union, what how did that Ukraine there compare to what Ukraine today is? And when were the borders moved around? So the biggest shift really under the Soviet era, outside of the addition of, say, Crimea, is really the addition of Lviv and Galicia and what would be um, essentially the non-Russian areas of Ukraine were essentially added, uh, particularly after the Second World War. Other than that, the, the what we would consider modern-day Ukraine matches up rather nicely to what at least would be considered the historic lands of Ukraine, at least during the Soviet era. Um, a, a, again, it's it's one of those where the, where there's differences is that again there's that sort of Western Ukrainian um, history which is is takes on a different sort of tenor because again they weren't under Russian rule, so they were able to develop. Um, that culture uh, in Western Ukraine, in modern-day Lviv, uh, that extends into Kiev, uh, where you then have in Kharkiv, where it's a bit more Russified, again, because of its, its uh, it having been under Russian rule. And that's also why, again, to, there's been so much talk about how uh, the, sort of the, lang the linguistics of current-day Ukraine, um, how Kharkiv is predominantly Russian, again, Donetsk, Luhansk also being predominantly Russian. Um, that all stems again from just sort of the the different histories of where parts of Ukraine, which that the territory we call the, the the nation we call Ukraine today, and the borders today, they just span across two empires, and um, eventually they 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 develop into again Ukraine as we know it today, thanks to, to um, what the Soviet Union is able to essentially control after the Second World War. I did say we weren't going to dive back into the history too much, but it's probably worth mentioning that they, when we talk about uh, Western Ukraine, uh, mm -hmm. Kiev area, these areas have been pretty consistently settled by uh, Ukrainians for mm -hmm. centuries, whereas yes. part of the east, um, these were quite depopulated after the Mongol era by slave raids out of the, the Ottoman Empire. And so a lot of cities there are more recent kind of creations under Catherine the Great or other times that were settled by Russians moved in by the empire from other places. If we carry on then moving more up towards the end of the Soviet Union, nationalist movements appearing around throughout the Soviet time and they grew stronger as time went on. Um, could you tell us maybe a bit about the Ukrainian mood for going through like the 70s and 80s? Uh, and, and so during the 70s and 80s, so, so Ukraine is sort of this odd nation within um, the Soviet context, because um, on one hand, you obviously have a number of Russians who are controlling the Soviet Union, but Ukrainians tend to be the next sort of high proportion uh, nationality and upper echelons of the Soviet Union. Um, so again, like Khrushchev developed, started first as the chairman of Ukraine, Brezhnev also coming from uh, Ukraine. And so you have this sort of weird also relationship that way is 
that under Stalin, the Ukrainian intelligentsia gets undermined, but it starts to rebuild over the 70s and 80s. And so when then we get to Gorbachev, um, and you start to see sort of the rumblings of all those nationalist movements, not just in Eastern Europe, but they start to then also have an expression uh, in the uh, sort of the, the, the actual Soviet socialist republics. Um, they start to then consider well, this could be now the opportunity to have that uh, clear Ukrainian nation that is independent, that is separate from the Soviet Union. And so they're watching very deeply what's happening, for example, with Yeltsin and and. and uh, his issues with Gorbachev and the various sort of maneuvering that is there. So that way, when we get to 1991, all throughout the year, there are a number of rallies that focus on how Ukraine again, the Ukraine's going to push the Soviet Union out, that they want to have independence. And the independence vote passes um, significantly um, by wide margin, largely because over time, now there's this sort of outpouring and under perestroika, they can start to also kind of rebuild and, and reconsider the old sort of Ukrainian national narratives and start to consider how Ukraine is a unique nation uh, outside of the sort of the Soviet box that 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 really controlled um, what they could and couldn't say or do. So, um, and that's to all kind of bubbles over in this moment where you then, it's not just obviously Ukraine, but all of the various socialist uh, republics and of course, Eastern Europe um, over the course of 1989 and then to 1991. Uh, declare independence, taking advantage of this moment um, and effectively turning the Soviet Union into um, essentially a shell that has, serves no purpose. And Gorbachev um, announces its dissolution in, at the end of 1991. Yeah. So in 1991, we have to vote for independence. And uh, yeah, the Soviet Union breaks up into 15 republics uh, within the borders that existed at the time. And uh, you know, we're quite used to the idea, if we look around other empires around the world, that post-imperial borders uh, don't always coincide with the wishes of the people that live in those countries. But I don't think there's been any real changes to the borders of those 15 countries. Yeah. Although, obviously, there are several you know, ongoing disputes mm -hmm. in some areas. And within Ukraine, every region voted in favour of independence. Mm -hmm. With some differences in the, in the majority, but even Crimea, uh, which is maybe a slightly special case compared to the rest of uh, Ukraine, even in Crimea, 54% of people voted mm -hmm. in favour of independence. You've been saying a bit, there are these differences in the populations. Uh, there's Crimea, obviously, eastern Ukraine. Um, there's also significant Hungarian minority, uh, Romanians other peoples from around the Soviet Union. To what extent was Ukraine uh, a nation state in 1991? So I, I, I would say that it was a fairly united in the sense that the, the desire for autonomy was really what was driving them. And at that point, there was a desire to develop something new and as Ukrainian, uh, much like all of the other various uh, Eastern European um, states and the former Soviet republics. This was an opportunity to be that independent nation to finally act on the independence. And, and for Ukraine, again, it had never really had the opportunity to be independent outside of that uh, brief moment where it was really under the thumb of the German Empire um, and then was caught between various different uh, nations who also all wanted to gain some of that territory as well. Um, and so this is sort of, th th that's why I, I like the, after 1991, 
um, there's this there's this big outpouring of this. And what what the bigger issue ha- happens is less whether or not uh, Ukraine is unified in terms of its nationhood, but in terms of which direction does it go. Um, and this is sort of again the story of not just Ukraine, but so many many nations in Eastern European bordering states on Russia. Um, we've even seen it come play out with with Belarus in recent uh, memories. Although that's thanks to also um, a willingness to repress certain uh, trains of thought. Um, but Ukraine is sort of yo-yoed back and forth between this position of does it want to stay kind of linked to Russia? Does it want to move towards the West? And that's where then there have been these. Uh, moments of tension, at least between different parts of the population, um, in terms of the, the, democra- the demographic makeup and things like this, where we've seen sort of those moments where um, we all recall the Orange Revolution in 2004, Afro Maidan in 2013 and, and 2014. And both of those were West facing uh, moments where the result of those revolutions was this strong push to the West. At the same time, um, Yanukovych, who was uh, both in power uh, before the Orange Revolution and then again right before the uh, the Emperor Maidan, uh, Viktor Yanukovych represented a pro-Russian um, uh, example, and that's the one thing where, because of the both linguistics and some of the cultural heritage, in which really prior to this conflict, to this war, um, and this is even going back to the initial invasion of Crimea, is Russians and Ukrainians the, the, the idea of that they always saw themselves as brothers? They saw themselves as Slavic peoples, just of a different nation, but they were um, the, 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 they were brothers. Um, that started to change partially because of this um, growing desire by Putin to carve away some parts of Ukraine, particularly the more Russian-speaking part, um, and to merge them into Ukraine or to give them at least. Um, some form of autonomy, but likely completely dependent on Russian rule. So, yeah, and I think when we talk about pro-Russian, um, we ought to be clear that these were people that are in favour of being friendly with Russia, yes. being yes. oriented towards Russia, but not being part of Russia. Yes, there's been public surveys for thirty odd years showing quite consistently that people in Ukraine and in Russia were both in favor of two independent countries that were just mm. friendly with open borders. And, and, and even some of the, the the recent polling that is coming out of Russia in the uh, sort of that led up to this said the same thing. There is there was not strong favor of of invading Ukraine for the purposes of uniting it with Russia. Um, this was still very much that if, if there was support, it was for these specific regions. But a lot of it was they, they saw the average Russian saw Ukraine as Ukraine. Um, the issue was, is if they were concerned, and this is where, again, um, some of uh, sort of Putin's concerns and just general Russia, Russian uh, geopolitical concerns, that push towards the EU or, the, or, the, or NATO has always been something that's been very touchy for, for the Russians, generally speaking, especially during the 90s um, and, and obviously the last uh, two decades under Putin. As it's seen as, um, the, the, there's, I don't like the term sort of sphere of influence. But again, it is for the Russians in the sense that this is sort of, they, they see that as these are their borderlands. These are nations that should be perhaps at the very least friendly to Russia and not, uh, and, and again, NATO is seen, especially NATO, as a very anti-Russian um, concept, especially based off the Cold War. Yes, uh, I don't think that Putin's arguments, I think one of the reasons that he's presented them is that they're not normal arguments in Russia. They're not the... Yeah. 
the prevailing viewpoint of the public. Mm-hmm. And you know, certainly speaking to older family and people back in Russia now who are maybe not don't speak foreign languages, don't use the internet so much and rely on the TV. It's hard for them to understand because the idea that Russia would invade Ukraine to make it part of Russia mm-hmm. is so crazy that they just can't accept that it would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and I think that's why we 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 see Putin at times rely on sort of the familiar anti-NATO approach or anti-EU approach because that I think resonates a little bit more in the sense that and and and, and frankly it's it's going to probably resonate more in the coming weeks because of the economic hardship that will be taking place in Russia as a result of the sanction. But it's also familiar because it, it dates back to the Cold War era, and that's something um, I, I that. It, it's it's why it's sort of interesting that he will always mention that, and then there's always those sort of, um, I, I, I just to get into a little bit more of the current day situation. One of the thing, reasons I think so many of the um, Russian leaders, when they're speaking, are making threats to NATO, is again for to, to sort of prime, um, especially the the the, the Russian um, those those who are consuming state t- TV and things like this to prime them for something that's again familiar this idea that the west is encroaching on what is traditionally seen as russian um and even though that is that 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 has its own long history as well it's something that i think is far more effective in terms of um winning over the average russian than anything that with regards to ukraine in terms of this full invasion of ukraine and trying to reincorporate it back into russia so maybe talk a bit about what's happened since you know, 1991, if we talked about whether there was a nation state, then uh, I think the course of this invasion now shows quite clearly that the Ukrainians are a united people mm-hmm. today. And um, we talk about like some of the processes that have gone on over the last 30 years that have uh, led up to this. Obviously, the 2014 is a, a part of it, but maybe other things and um, the promotion of the Ukrainian language, which is sometimes presented certainly in Russia, as you know, some kind of a suppression of Russian-speaking culture in Ukraine. Um, to what extent might that be true? Um, so, so focusing on the 90s, there was, again, a desire to push away from, from um, Russia. And this is one reason why, is again, now out from underneath the yoke of the Soviet Union, and then also, again, considering the long history under Russian uh, uh, imperial control, there was a desire to promote Ukrainian uh, things. Um, and so there was a focus on Ukrainianization and things like this uh, in parts of Ukraine. At the same time, um, as is very evident today, uh, that did, did nothing to to undermine uh, the, the 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 use of of Russian and whatnot. During the '90s, I think was much more of a time period where Ukraine tried to really establish itself that it could be autonomous, it could be on its own, and to really push away from Russia. And this is then why you have this sort of moment that eventually leads up to the to the Orange Revolution, where Viktor Yanukovych comes in as sort of this uh, both a, a force of stability in one sense, but he's also pushing away from, um, say, the the Leonid Kuchma, the, the the corruption and things like that, and trying to um, re-navigate Ukraine's position as potentially being somewhat closer to Russia. The issue is is that. Um, I think what like, like the 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 concerns over Ukrainianization are, I, I think, overdone in the simple. Just like NATO is, I think, overdone. Is is I explain this to my students this way because there's always a tendency, and I'll use the NATO example because it nicely illustrates this. 
is we always like to focus on Russia and the United States. So in this case, there's always this focus on Russia and Russia's sort of concerns here. But think of if you're Ukraine, but just like you'd be if you're thinking about your any of the Eastern European nations coming out uh, after uh, the Eastern Bloc collapses. You see Russia as the imperial power. You want to distance yourself from it. And so a lot of their policies they undertake are to try to push away from the old Soviet way, the old Russian way, and to stand on its own. And with, for example, NATO, and this is one of the reasons why um, Ukraine is sort of, especially when it has its moments where it pushes towards the more westernized side, um, and this is also one reason why the EU also is so alluring, is if the option is under sort of Russian control or influence or something else, the only reasonable something else for uh, Ukraine, as would be for many of these other Eastern European nations, is NATO in the EU. Um, and so the problem is, is there's this sort of all or nothing sense that I think gets um, sort of focused on so much, uh, especially when looking at a nation like Ukraine, when a lot of what they're doing is they want to just be able to stand on their own. And a lot of the tension that's developed are more from concerns that um, either the Russians have that Ukraine could be drifting away. Or again, in, within internally in Ukraine, that especially when a more a, a leader that might lean more towards working with Russia and Russian rapprochement, the concern is that will that pull Ukraine out of sort of the ability to be more integrated with Europe and be able to stand on its own? Because there's always that concern about being sort of drawn back into the old imperial power. Uh, and I think that's sort of where these moments of Ukrainianization and things like this, which make some sense, at least within the history of the time period, um, even if they might be some, sometimes heavy-handed, I think what they also do show is, is that this is a post-colonial state that is trying to maintain its independence. And it's also dealing with the fact that there's a strong Russian community. And that's one reason why there are these predominantly Russian-speaking areas still in Ukraine. Um, but again, as we've seen now, um, the, the, the issue of demographics and linguistics, I think, has been in some ways... I want to say overblown, um, because there was always a sense of, okay, how united is it? Because if you'd look at a map, particularly of some of the uh, recent elections, um, as I, as I, for, for, for those who maybe are more familiar with, say, American politics, there's this idea of northern states and southern states. Well, the same thing is almost in Ukraine, where there's almost this nice clean line in the middle that separates uh, sort of the more, again, the, the, the sections that are more willing to lean towards um, Russian uh, either influence or friendship, and ones more that are more Western uh, leaning or focused, and that's always sort of again been something like, okay, when is it going to turn one way or another? And now the question is, is what's again, whenever this is resolved, and hopefully with uh, Ukraine still independent, um, what's that map going to look like? Is going to be very interesting to see because. Um, one of the things that myself and a number of my colleagues have been all sort of very intrigued by is that if you consider all of Putin's fears, the rise of NATO, the EU, the westernization of Eastern Europe, the Ukrainian, the alleged the Ukrainianization and anti-Russianism of Ukraine, he's done more to help all of that. And so will that also, again, um, we're seeing a new national myth, mythology developing right before our eyes also with Ukraine. Um, and that the, the the courageous resistance to the ghost of Kiev, to 
um, other stories, including the, the the sailors of, Sh- of Snake Island, and they're from all over Ukraine. They're not just sort of the Western areas or anything like that. So um, it, it's again, it's one of those where are we going to be changing our analysis now based off sort of Ukraine? Because a lot of what we would sort of focus on the last decade that may just not be true anymore. So your Western analysis has always been pretty questionable because people tended to be very Russian focused. Everything was very you know, Moscow-centered then. But I, this is not just a problem in the West, because what we're seeing is really that Putin and uh, the whole Russian regime also just didn't seem to have any idea what's going on in, in Ukraine either. Mm-hmm. If you know, The reports appear to be that they expected to be welcomed, that they could appeal to the Ukrainian army to overthrow Zelensky and they'd have some kind of chance of success really just like no understanding of what they were walking into at all yeah and and that that's the part that that i think is the most interesting because putin seems to have believed his own rhetoric in this case um the like, like there's sort of the the um there were like reports coming out that apparently there were pre-prepared statements on the the uh unification of belarus ukraine and and russia as greater russia being reformed um, and then like that, that also puts what's happening in Belarus also into some kind con- sort of, uh, into context and into focus about is that, what was that Putin's end game? Um, but it's also that the resistance of Ukrainians, um, I, one, I don't think, uh, like even American intelligence has, has, has apparently been stating that they did, they also shortchanged, uh, Ukrainian resistance there. I, I remember watching, um, CNN a couple of weeks in the early days of the actual uh, when the war escalated and there was constantly the the on the bottom it kept saying oh that the American officials believe that Kiev will fall that Kiev will fall within days and it's still resisting um, with heavy casualties and again significant devastation uh, thanks to the efforts of the Russians but. Um, the resistance has been something that's just been amazing to see, but it's also heartbreaking because it's, it's will Putin stop? If, if, if Putin's end goal was the absorption of Ukraine into Russia, will he accept anything less? Um, especially when he's now risking his own stability at home um, with the economic issues. So It's difficult to see, even if there was some kind of a you know, settlement that divided Ukraine and you know, the Donetsk and Luhansk, regions went to russia it's it's hard to see how they would settle down even then and, and and one of the things that's been sort of reported is that uh russia is also asking for ukraine to openly be neutral um some reports i heard again i, I can't say they're confirmed so i want to be careful uh that uh there was a desire to implant somebody specifically who would essentially be pro-russian in the government to ensure that ukraine would maintain its neutrality or at least a uh, Russo-focused outlook. Um, there, there, I, I cannot see Zelensky, especially given um, how Ukraine has also united around him, uh, risking all of that um, outside of, except for the, the only thing there is, 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 is to stop the loss of life. But at the same time, um, is, a, is a neutral Ukraine, will this just embolden Putin to down the road try again? Um, these are questions, of, unfortunately, we, we don't have answers to. And again, even th- that are uh, a lot of the Western analysis on Putin is, is now has been challenged by all of this, that the number of people who came out and said that they didn't expect this 
Um, and and like, like again, th- this whole moment has also been very, I think, eye-opening for for Russia specialists, just generally speaking, um, because a lot of the assumptions and a lot of the analysis um, is starting to be challenged. And um, we'll it, it, we'll we'll see where it goes from there. I mean, I think a part big part of that is that it's impossible to see how Putin could win. Mm-hmm. Just from day one, the idea is, is just it seems unwinnable. So you, you want no one would ever expect him to do it. And even if we talk about you know like neutrality, you, you could say people would agree to neutrality maybe yes to, for a ceasefire and. A, to save lives, but it's hard to imagine that a Russian puppet regime would be viable in Ukraine now. Yeah, and 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 that's all like like the, a reality. One reality that can't we I I can't see is an, a Russian occupation of Ukraine. Um, resistance is, is just too too significant. And uh, one of the interesting things will be is is that um, while uh, like NATO tend to tends to avoid. Um, pushing this far close to uh, the Russian borders, the Baltics were a, a unique situation. Um, I, I, I doubt that this will lead to Ukraine joining NATO or anything like that. The question will be something like the European Union, and even if they're not joining the European Union, would Ukraine operate as this sort of? Uh, will they grow closer in one sense, and and what will that mean? Because um, again, it's it's. This is sort of like Putin's plan just simply didn't work. And it like uh, I, he gambled and he lost big. And so the thing is, is again, um, are the like, when, when, if this is ever resolved and I, well, when it's resolved, um, what is the EU going to do, especially now that they have made assurances that they're going to fast track Ukrainian entry and things like this? Um, after all of this, one of the biggest questions I think that the West is going to have to, broadly speaking, the West and the global community, I should say at large, is how do they rebuild? And then will that be considered an act of aggression in some way by Russia? At the same time, depending on where Russia is, um, and again, how stable Putin is, one of the big questions is going to be, is this a repeat of the 1990s? where the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia was economically in a bad way. Now, some economic historians are arguing that, th- that this is even worse than the 90. What role will the, will the global community play in terms of also rebuilding Russia to prevent, to, to prevent this from just happening again in a couple of decades with another, uh, say, nationalist leader in Russia or something like this, especially as one of the things that Putin is doing to try to at least whip up some report, uh, some support for all of this, is he is relying heavily on that anti-Western uh, rhetoric uh, again. And frankly, average Russians are going to see the economic devastation of Russia, and it's easy for them to. It will be easy for many of them to make the connection of, well, this is the West did this to us, um, and so we could be seeing sort of a repeat of some of what we saw in the 1990s again. I think it'll be worse than the 90s because. Yep. I lived in Russia in the 90s, and yeah, a lot of things were bad. But on the other hand, there was a, a lot of positive around at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, people really thought that they were moving forwards. Yep. There were obviously points of disillusionment, and uh, belief in democracy was quite severely undermined by various things that happened along the way. But people still thought that they were moving forwards to something that was better, and I don't think that's going to be there now. Yep. I think it will just be resentment and uh and at the moment we have ordinary people being quite severely 
you know, punished yes. by cutting off cutting off social media and YouTube and things that the opposition to Putin uses to organize is being stamped out. But Germany's still spending hundreds of millions a day on buying gas, filling Putin's pockets for his war or whatever. So the impact is not really hitting the people that it should be hitting mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree there. And um, like, the, like the, the one thing that I... I again i remind students when i'm talking about this they've been very interested about trying to sort of figure out what what's going to happen in russia and i i always just think about the those who are younger who have no they don't know the soviet experience um so there's not sort of uh that that they've gotten used to um a life with western luxuries iphones coca-cola uh youtube what have you tiktok for example uh, i understand is was big in in, in russia um this this changes their life dramatically and in what way we're not going to know uh for quite some time and then also just hearing the reports that those that 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 for example engineers particularly but also uh specialists in a variety of different fields they have the money and the ability to leave the country what is the effects of the brain drain going to be on russia and things like this in the future um all of those are going to have long lasting effects and I think we're. This is just the beginning of what are going to be a lot of long, long-lasting consequences. Um, not just obviously for Ukraine that is taking these heavy casualties and this, this devastation, but also the long-term effects on Russia and Russian society. Um, and the, I, I think this is going to be like like we've already seen within a couple of weeks repression going to high levels to where. Um, uh, this is hardly the most important thing, but again, just Russian specialists, all of a sudden we're now realizing we're never coming back to Russia to, to research. Um, and so, so again, what's that going to do for our analysis of the region to be able to um, going forward in terms of how we understand what's going on in Russia? Um, that's a minor thing, but it's something that can also have long lasting consequences in terms of trying to understand and um again, provide that feeling of progress or repairing these, this, this relationship, whatever you want to call it, um, down the road. Um, especially also when, again, there's the, the frequency saying this is Putin's war, not, not Russia's war. Again, highlighting how unpopular the war is. At some point, that's going to be harder to say because we won't know, um, especially if Putin is controlling the message and it does start to resonate. So, Yes, and, and beyond Russia and Ukraine, uh, the, you know, Central Asia tends to fly under the radar for most people in the West, but those countries are critically dependent on remittances from Russia that are going to be halting now, and it's quite unpredictable what might happen there as well. So there's one more thing I would like to discuss from uh, Putin's accusations, and that is, of course, the, uh, the rather ridiculous idea that they are denazifying a uh, country with an elected Jewish president. Yes, um, and 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 this is this has, this sort of has two parts to it. Um, the obvious part that, uh, at least for with regards to Russia, is that the Soviet Union was the the t- took the brunt of the Nazi invasion and uh, is also what repelled Hitler and uh, Hitler's forces uh, back to Berlin and the high loss of life, twenty six, twenty seven million. Uh, uh, casualties, um, death, sorry, um, suffered by the Soviet Union during the Second World War. The Second World War is one of the strongest national uh, sort of 
moments in Russian history. Uh, Victory Day, May 9th, is the, a, a massive uh, a parade. It's a massive event in Russia uh, with military uh, parades and things like this. Um, it, is, it is that moment of national pride. And for Russia, they see themselves as the nation that saved the world from Nazism, and they will do it again if they have to. Uh, and so one, that's one reason why denazifying is, is, is used. One, because it, again, uh, resonates with the national mythology that Putin has also helped uh, build over the, over the last two decades, but is, has been tied to the Soviet and then later the Russian national myth right from 1945. As for then, with regards to Ukraine specifically, and, and, and it should be noted that Putin has called also the Baltic states neo-Nazi. Uh, he's called Ukraine neo-Nazi on multiple occasions, uh, even before Zelensky. Um, part of this comes from two, uh, two points. One is the complicated history of collaboration in Eastern Europe. Um, that many Eastern European nations, when uh, Nazi forces invaded, they were greeted as liberators. Uh, by some segments of the population. Um, some locals collaborated, helping with the Holocaust, helping the Nazis. Um, and that is something that Putin is also certainly embellishing for the purposes of trying to show that sort of Russia has always stood against Nazism, whereas these regions have this history of collaboration. Um, one of the more notable uh, Ukrainian nationalist heroes, Stepan Bandera, uh, is seen as a controversial figure because uh, when the Germans invaded, uh, he declared Ukrainian independence using German the German invasion as his pretext. Um, some see him as um, sort of that he's just taking advantage. Others highlight that as a form of collaboration. Uh, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists also uh, are were were involved either through themselves or UPA, the Ukrainian insurgent army. Uh, through or involved in ethnic cleansing of Poles as the ethnic tensions in the regions boiled over as essentially the Ukrainian nationalist forces or certain segments of the Ukrainian nationalist forces essentially fought anybody who stood in the, in the way of a Ukrainian nation, whether they were uh, Poles, the Soviets, the Nazis, what have you. Um, Holocaust historians uh, disagree to what extent Ukrainian nationalism was complicit with, uh, with uh, regards to uh, the killing of Jewish populations in the region. So there's this massive complicated history that is also tied to the Ukrainian national issue. Um, to what extent is of great dis discussion and disagreement amongst historians. But this is where things like the black and red flag of UPA become very loaded because for some Ukrainians, it's a Ukrainian nationalist symbol. To Polish populations, it's seen as glorifying a group that participated in, in ethnic cleansing. Um, or it's seen as anti-Semitic. And particularly during Evromaidan, a number of far-right groups rehabilitated the UPA flag and, and showcased it. And Putin noticed this, and he claimed that, see, look at the neo-Nazis who are now in, uh, trying to influence this moment of trying to push Ukraine away from uh, Russia. Now, the, these far-right groups were a small segment of what is a much larger movement that they took it also took, we're trying to take advantage of the movement. Um, and much like virtually every other nation in the world, there is a significant far right uh, contingent. But Putin has also, again, used that target of neo-Nazism to, and then tied it to this history, both for the, the triumphalist Russian national myth, but also the complicated history of collaboration. And then the rehabilitation of certain flags and symbols to tie this into sort of this justification 
when just to, to sort of point this out in the most recent elections far-right groups in ukraine rep- uh, were only a small percentage i believe they only have one seat in the rav narada so um they're not necessarily that important but because of their existence he has ramped that up and embellished it as a way to try to uh, again create this fabrication uh, for this and uh, the existence of certain groups such as the Azov Regiment that is known to have far right uh, beliefs only adds to sort of the the fire that he is trying to stoke when again it is a small section that represents then the he's using that to sort of tar the entire Ukrainian nationalist movement. Yes, yes, I think that's right. You know, at the Maidan, they, these groups did come, you know, they've got a lot of uh, you know, media mm-hmm. yeah. because they're quite photogenic in the ring. But I think the last eight years has clearly shown that they didn't have any yeah. kind of wider power at all. They they don't play a, a role yeah. in you know, gov- government or anything else, really. Exactly. And, yeah. and I think that... Um, a result of this war will be that they have even less of a mm-hmm. role because we will see you know, Ukrainian patriotism, uh, Ukrainian unity becoming you know, more widespread and mm-hmm. there will just be less of a constituency for these kind of you know, fringe nationalist groups than they might have been when the country was a, maybe a bit more divided or uncertain mm-hmm. about its identity. Yeah. Um... Again, it's one of those where this this is just again the the uh, unification of the Ukrainian resistance movement is going to have uh, very interesting reverberations also for how Ukraine um, develops over in, in the future. Um, and and again, Zelensky, uh, there there's sort of a degree where uh, he was he was almost dismissed because again, as a, as a as a comedian, um, the Ukrainian. Uh, sort of uh, Ukrainian John Stewart, uh, in, in some ways, as I, I've heard him also referred to at one point, and he has st- stepped up as a, a very strong leader. And Zelensky has also sort of again uh, d- developed as as part of the the nationalist myth as well. So um, again, it's just it, it's it's more from just sort of again watching events unfold. Um, there have been a lot of sort of surprising um, turns of turn of events. And they suggest again, should this be resolved? And again, I think we, I, I think it's fair to say we all hope that it will be resolved soon. How that happens, I, I don't know. I fear the worst, unfortunately, but I, I'm I'm trying to be optimistic that somehow this ends and uh, with Ukraine still independent. And um, again, I, I don't know how how that will happen, but I just hope. But it will be very interesting to see um, what happens with Zelensky going forward, um, because I, I, I think that's one thing in Ukrainian politics. There have been moments like uh, there's the Klitschkos, there's, uh, there was Yushchenko, there was, uh, uh, and others. But there's never been someone like Zelensky who really seemed to unify the people around him. Um, and that's something that um, could be promising going forward for Ukraine. Maybe there's not been a president who had uh, genuine popularity and the opportunity to do something with it, you know, presuming that we can reach some kind of peaceful settlement. You know, although Ukraine has you know, successfully elected presidents and contested elections, the, you know, the, the oligarchs and uh, you know, various Russia, other groups have still had a strong influence on uh, you know, what happens and uh, maybe obstructed reform over the years as well. And this um, you know, could be an opportunity for Zelensky to 
do some real change if he's given the chance. Well, maybe we should end there on a hopeful note. Yes. Although, I, I, like you, I share your worries that things will only get worse from here. I, I, I try to end every interview I do with some some means for hope, even if that's hard, as, as with, with news coming out every day of, of the civilian casualties. We just have to hope that Ukrainian resistance keeps fighting and that... Uh, keep say, I keep saying un- sort of surprising con- consequences of this, that there's a surprising consequence that somehow leads to a resolution that the world can live with. Yes. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been very interesting talking to you. And uh, I think that would be very helpful to a lot of people who maybe can't figure out from the news what's going on sometimes. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you again to Olexa for making time to speak to me. For anyone who might be wondering, for anyone who might be wondering how they can help Ukraine, there are some links for listeners in America and the UK in the show blog post. As always, you can reach me via the website, the Russian Empire History Podcast.com, Twitter or Facebook, or by email at hello at the Russian Empire History Podcast.com. Thank you for listening, and join me next time as we return to the main narrative with Bulgars on the Western Steppe.